words I speak, the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. This morning's Gospel reading is one of the central biblical passages for the Franciscan Way. It is this, or its equivalent in Matthew, has shaped our identity since the time of Francis. It is this reading, or the reading from Matthew, that Francis heard. We even have the date, the 24th of February, 1208. An important date in the life of the Franciscans. This was the day he heard and embraced the life of poverty. Where he threw away his leather belt and his money bag, threw away his sandals and embraced Lady Poverty. His life and the life of the Franciscans was never the same. He took these words absolutely seriously and absolutely literally. And he sought to live them out for the rest of his life. He had before this already, uh, well in the eyes of the rest of the world, gone crazy. Uh, He'd spent his um, time in prayer. He'd rebuilt the church of San Damiano outside of the walls of Assisi and a couple of the other churches. Uh, he had his um, break up with his father uh, and had rejected his father and his wealth and that way of life and the values that went with it. Uh, had lived as a, alone as a hermit and uh, one or two other men had joined him. But he still was looking for something more. He wasn't quite sure what it was, but there was something missing. And on the Feast of St. Matthias on 1208, he found it in this Gospel reading. He understood this reading to be the heart of the Gospel. And so the rules that he wrote all were to help his brothers live out the Gospel, live out this passage. And it was hard. While his first brothers got got what he was about, that little group of about eight brothers, even before his death the compromises were starting. And over the last 800 years, there have been reform movements that have tried to go back to Francis's vision based on this passage. But it's hard, and they've never quite stuck as they wanted. Nonetheless, this passage stands at the heart of our way of life. It has a lot clearly to say about our attitudes to money and to possessions, even for those of us in the third order. And it is one of the passages that all of us continue to struggle with, even as it continues to shape our lives. Let's be honest, none of us live out this passage. It's really demanding. And I suspect most of us move on quickly to the next passage and just hope that no one noticed that it was there. But let's pause for a moment. Because I think this passage has a lot more to say to us than just our attitudes to wealth and possessions, significant as they are. Another aspect of this passage that was deeply influential for Francis was the gifting of peace. When Francis, uh, when Jesus sent out his disciples, the peace they were to give 
uh, was a tangible, it sounds like a tangible thing, doesn't it? Offer the peace to the house. If there is somebody who will receive it, it will rest on him. If there isn't, it will return to you. It's not some kind of ethereal, nice idea. It's a, it's a real thing. And it was the same for Francis. Peace was at the heart of what he understood his life to be about, living God's peace. And so when he greeted people, he greeted them. Peace and all good to you from God. And this wasn't just nice words. He was offering God's peace to people. And his life was about bringing peace. The famous story of the Wolf of Gubbio, which I think I told last year at, uh, the, at the pet service, where Francis was asked to go to Gubbio because it was a wolf that was terrorising the villagers. Well, that was about the conflict between the wolf who kept eating the, the domestic animals of the villagers, and they weren't overly happy about that, fair enough. But it was also about the discord and the conflict within the life of the, of the villagers which the wolf represented. And his going there not only reconciled the wolf to the villagers, but to the villagers to each other. He went to bring peace. Not just a nice idea, but a tangible reality. When the bishop and the mayor of Assisi were in conflict, he went to bring peace, to resolve that conflict. Not just a nice idea, but God's way was about peace. When the crusaders were in Egypt, camped, and in conflict with the Muslims, he went there too, walked through the Crusader lines, went to the Muslim lines, where he was arrested, he and his companion, and taken before the Sultan. Who knows how he got to the Sultan, how he wasn't executed on the spot. But somehow, there was something so different about him that he was taken to the Sultan who was a holy man, a well-learned man, who was devout, but defending his lands. And he and Francis spent days together in conversation. There was something about Francis that intrigued him, and Francis found in him a kindred spirit. There are all sorts of stories that go around that, but we do know that when Francis returned, he brought with him a horn that was gifted to him by the sultan. And he used that horn to call his brothers to prayer. And he changed his rule as a result of that encounter. He went there to bring peace. And he sent his brothers into Muslim-controlled lands, not to convert, but to serve. To serve the Muslims that were there. And he hoped that through that service they would find the love of Christ, the peace of Christ. But they went to bring peace. That was the tangible thing that Francis went out to do. Another significant part of this reading is that Jesus sent out 70 or 72 people and he sent them in pairs. And Francis followed that pattern. He sent his brothers out always in pairs, at least in pairs. They were never alone. I think that was a really important aspect of the story and of Francis's adopting of Jesus' way. Imagine what it would have been like that 70 sent out. For actually much of their journey to the towns and the villages, they would have been in much bigger groups than 70. They would have been in big clumps together as they went down the road, talking about what they were doing and how they were supposed to 
what they were supposed to do when they get there and the sense of urgency that is in that story. They were not alone. They were doing it together. So I read that story. It reminded me of some of the times that I've been overseas to places which have been uncomfortable for me. The first couple of times that I went to Fiji for big youth events, the first time in 1989 with... um, Bonnie and our six-month-year-old Kate, and uh, we went to a youth event, and at the end of the youth event in Suba, we went out and spent the last night in a village, and we went in big groups to those villages, and I was really glad for that, because it was a very foreign environment for me, and even when we were billeted at night, we were billeted in groups, so there was Bonnie and Kate and I, and there was at least one other person staying in that house. And we were well looked after. But it meant that we were together. We were not alone in that foreign environment. Or the second time we went back, we flipped it around and we went to Suva. And actually, while we were in Suva, we were billeted out in the villages. And then we um, went off to Pacific Harbour for the last part of what we were doing. And as always happened when we flew to Fiji for youth events, the, the, the plane was delayed for multiple hours. So we arrived many hours late at the village who'd had this meal prepared for us many hours earlier and were not sure if we were going to turn up and were a little bit grumpy about all of this even though they knew it wasn't our fault and it was just comforting and it made it a whole lot better experience because we were there together as a group and some of us were really good at just sitting down with people and talking to them even though they'd never met them and The language barrier was a little bit awkward because their English wasn't flash. And some of us were better at the public speaking bit and and doing the official bits. And our gifts complemented each other. If we'd been on our own in that situation, it would have been a lot more awkward. It was better because we did it together. And the next day, when the transport didn't arrive for whatever reason... You know, if we'd been on our own in that situation, it would have been a terrible experience. But we were there, there was a group of us, and we could go, well, how are we going to sort this out? Do we get taxis? You know, what are we going to do? And eventually the transport arrived, and it was okay because we were just there together and we knew something would happen. It was just better because we were there together. Well, the first time I went to the Solomons with Dorothy, Mama Dorothy. Mama Dorothy works... I'm not sure she actually likes being called Mama Dorothy, Dorothy Brooker. But um, Mama and uh, Pigeon is father. So all the priests are mamas. I'm a mama when I go there. Um, so Mama worked because she's a priest, so she's Mama Dorothy, and it works for us in our language as well. She was never particularly happy about it, but I keep calling her it anyway. And um, she'd been there. She'd been a missionary in the Solomons, um, She knew some of the people we were going to visit. She'd been there as a provincial minister. Uh, So it wasn't an unfamiliar territory for her, but it was very foreign for me, both in terms of the heat and the layout, the people, the language. I didn't have a word of pigeon. Um, And having her there was a real comfort. It helped me find my feet. In fact... She stayed up in Chester House, a quite nice guest house up on the hill, and I stayed down 
uh, in the friary. And even those moments, those times where I was alone down in the friary were really disconcerting because I didn't know the timetable, I didn't know the brothers, I didn't know if I was expected to be at the prayers. It was just all foreign. And the only reason I really survived that and grew through it was because I could go every day and up to Chester House and Dorothy and I would pray and then we'd kind of work out what was happening that day and where I needed to be and where she needed to be and and we could kind of go from that point. It was just better because we were there together. And I think that's the reason that Jesus sent out his disciples in that big group of 70 and then in pairs because it was better together. They would be able to do a lot more together. They would be able to complement each other. They would be able to support each other. They would be able to just stand with each other even when it wasn't very good. And then when they came back together just imagine that buzz as they met each other on the road returning to where Jesus was, sharing the stories of what had happened, the disappointments, the heartache for some, the excitement and the rejoicing and the amazement for others. Luke kind of hints at that, but I think that's one of the most important parts of the story, the buzz of those people being together, supporting each other, encouraging each other, exciting each other. We hear Jesus' speech, and it is an important speech. It's a speech which highlights that while the triumphs are good, don't get carried away with them, because that's not the source, the real source of our of our rejoicing. Our rejoicing should be in our relationship with God, that our names are written in heaven, knowing that we are never alone and that God is with us on our way. Whatever happens. But the really important part of that piece of the story for me is they did it together. And as they returned, they talked and shared and encouraged and supported each other. And in that, they found that God had been at work, even when they left the town dust-free. And even with that disappointment, because they were there together, they could look to go out again. Somehow, over the centuries, we've lost that communal aspect. Christianity has become about me and God and my ministry, what I do. And that's not how we find it in the Gospels or in Paul. For Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, which we heard the last part of today, it was all about the new Israel, the new people of God who had become the inheritors of the promise of God for creation and for all humanity. And the means by which that promise would come to fruition was through this new Israel, this new community. It wasn't about what people did as individuals, and it wasn't about an individual relationship with God. It was about the people of God, the community of God, and what they did together. Because it was better together. And the same is true for us today. While we often in our churches talk about our own individual ministries, it's actually about our ministry. 
our ministry here at St George's and our engaging in the mission of God, not as individuals, but as God's people in this place. And in fact, it's even bigger than that. And we're part of the Bay of Plenty region, so Cliff and Ava and I yesterday went to the regional conference. And we struggle with this regional identity as a diocese. There was a proposal yesterday to get rid of the regional executive because, well, it doesn't do anything. Well, it doesn't do anything because they never have a meeting. But maybe, maybe we could actually get it to do some things. Maybe we could actually be a region again and be more than just a collection of parishes that happen to be in the same geographical space. And we're part of a diocese. We're not just the parish of St George's. We're actually the Diocese of Waipu on this place here at Gay Par. We are part of something that is much bigger. And we're actually part of a tikanga. And so the bishop yesterday talked about General Synod and the struggles of General Synod within our tikanga, tikanga Parker, particularly around the issue of blessing of same-sex marriages. And how to hold those relationships together. Because, well, we are together, whether we like it or not. And we have to work this through together and find a way of working that issue out. And we're part of a province where there are two other tikanga who are holding us to account. Who are saying, you have two years to sort this out and then this will happen. So get your house in order. Stop mucking around, basically. That's another part of doing things together, that you're actually held to account. You can't just go off on your own, but actually the rest of us hold each other to account. And we're also part of an Anglican communion. One of the great joys in my previous role was being on the International Anglican Youth Network and knowing that actually we make a difference. Do you know how important it was for Anglicans in South Sudan that they were part of the Anglican Communion as they sought to bring peace and reconciliation in that war-torn country or to deal with the refugee issues or the many other issues that they were facing. They knew they weren't on their own. Yes, they were the ones there doing it, but they did it with the support and the backing of the Anglican Communion. It was profoundly important for them. The same for Anglicans in South Africa, dealing with AIDS and poverty and around the world. We tend to get into this very insular, individualistic kind of understanding of what the Gospel is about. But actually we're part of something that was so much bigger than us. And then we're part of the Church Catholic. Well, we're rubbish at that. I'm reading a book about the history of the papacy. And all those cracks in the church, well, they really come to light when the Emperor Constantine comes to power. But they only come to light because, well, he wanted to use the church to be the glue, Christianity to be the glue that held the empire together. And we were so divided. So they started calling councils, like the Council of Nicaea, basically saying... Would you guys get your act together, sort yourselves out, because you are in it together, and I wanna, I've got a job for you to hold the empire together. So, sort it out. Well, we never quite made it. 
and here we are 1700 years later more divided than we were even then this is a kind of an aside but later on in the service we're going to say the Agnes Day the Lamb of God and I actually discovered why we have the Lamb of God in our liturgies there's no great theological reason it was because the end of the Western Empire, when Rome eventually collapsed in about 480, there was still an emperor who was in Constantinople. And the emperor uh, and the pope for the next 300 years had quite a few um, bitter fights, some of it theological, some of it about power and who had authority over what. And one of the fights they had, well, it wasn't a fight, but on one occasion the emperor in Byzantium outlawed Jesus being depicted in art as a lamb. Lamb of God was out. Now he did that for theological reasons. But the Pope didn't agree. So the Pope inserted in the Western liturgy, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on me, in the liturgy. And that has stuck there. It's in the Catholic liturgy, it's in our liturgy, it's in the Methodist liturgy, and it was put there because the Pope was thumbing his nose at the emperor in Byzantium, saying, nah, we're not going to follow what you're on about. We're not very good at being together. But, well, it is better together. And the story today says that we are supposed to do it together. That is the way it's supposed to be. Francis got it. Other people have got it. But too often we lose it. So let's focus here today on doing things together. Not talking about me and God, but us and God. Not talking about my ministry, but our ministry. Because in the end it is about us. Because it's better when we do it together. Now we're going to say the Nicene Creed now, so I'm just taking over from Marion's role. And uh, the Nicene Creed was a theological statement and it was uh, a restatement of the faith decided at Nicaea. And we say it um, to kind of reaffirm that theological position, but actually more importantly than that, when we say the Creed, this Creed in particular and also the Apostles' Creed, we are saying that we are part of the church that has said this creed for the last 1,700 years. That we are together historically with those who have, even when we've struggled with understanding what the creed is about, even when we've struggled with even agreeing with what the words are about, we are still part of that church. That church that goes back to the Council of Nicaea in the early 300s and the church before that, and the church today who still uses this creed. Orthodox churches, Catholic churches, Anglican churches, Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches around the world, Lutheran churches. So this is a statement of, it's better when we do it together. And it's a statement of our intent to do it together with all those other churches on into the future. So let us stand and affirm our faith in the God as members of the church who recite this creed.